Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. All right, one more time. How are we doing at the 9 a.m. today? Okay. Hey, two things real quick, and I'll dive right in. Um, in just a couple weeks, October the 23rd is our second ever Her Gathering. How many women were at the last Her Gathering that we had? All right, a few representing. Uh, you do not want to miss this event. Go today on the Centerpoint app. Um, sign up for this event. It was one of the all-time things that we had done this last spring. Um, it's an incredible movement of women. It's unlike any women's event you've ever been to, which maybe was really, really lame. You've got to give this a chance October 23rd. So go sign up today, be a part of this thing. And then second thing, um, next week, I have a really good friend of mine and a great friend of our church, Bernard Scott, um, who's going to be here preaching. And I know, and I hate that you do this, some of you, when you know I'm not preaching, don't show up, which is ridiculous because every communicator we have is amazing, and Bernard Scott is amazing, and so you got to be here next week, and it is a great time to invite, and Nicole said it already. Thank you for those of you who've invited. You do it every week because you understand how much it impacts your faith, and then along with that, there are stories literally every week of my marriage was healed, or I was away for a decade and didn't really like the church or Jesus, and then everything changed because of an invite, Um, and so just 30 seconds of courage personally invite somebody to be here next week for Bernard Scott. I'm super excited about that. But today we are going to land the plane on part four of counterculture. Are you guys ready? Are you good? Okay. All right. I saved, I think the best for last or maybe um, the most controversial for last. So I'll just dip out the back when we're done and we'll see you next week for Bernard. I'm not sure. So uh, here's what we talked about in this series, uh, counterculture. Basically, how does our theology intersect with current culture. And that's the job of any of us to figure out because our theology is not stale and somehow elusive. It relates to everyday life, specifically in regard to divisiveness and polarization and um, you know the things that we see in culture that I think anybody would look at regardless of kind of where your faith lens is at and go, I don't know, it's kind of off the rails. So what does our theology say about that? And really, this is a question if you're a follower of Jesus and if you're online watching Unfiltered Radio, wherever you're at, we're so glad you're joining us. The question is, what should we do as followers of Jesus? What should we be known for? And one of the things in the series we wanted to do through Give, Serve, Love is create a practical application of, hey, this is what we should be known for in our community. This is what we should do. Now, what I want to talk about today really surrounds a point that Jesus made in the New Testament that I really think should inform and influence every church's posture. And today I'm talking about capital C church, and I'm also talking about our church, but it's not so much an individual application as it is a corporate application. But this should inform the posture of every local church as it relates to engaging culture. 
specifically, I think, in this cultural moment. And honestly, there are, I think, three dynamics that have made it really, really difficult or confusing around what Jesus taught and have led to some approaches by the church, capital C, just absolutely going off the rails. And the three, I'll just, I'll deal with the first two real quick. And then the third is what I want to land on. But the first one is this that I think has created a lot of confusion and has really moved in to create a filter for our faith that sometimes has led us far away from Jesus. And that first dynamic is the fact that we live in a culture where everything is politicized. Now, I'm not giving you new information. You're like, give me something new. I came to church today. I, you didn't really get dressed up, but like I'm here. Give me something new. But you know, everything is, is politicized. In fact, there are no neutral topics any longer. It doesn't matter what you talk about. Um, there are no neutral people any longer. Like people become politicized. And in fact, if you're paying attention, what's really interesting over the last couple of years is you'll see issues that are on one side and then they move to the other side and then everybody changes. And then, I mean, the whole thing is just all over the place, but everything and everybody seemingly is politicized. And that has impacted the local church. The second, I think, dynamic that has fueled confusion around what I wanna talk about that Jesus said is this idea of cancel culture. Now, I don't need to like explain that to you too much either, but you know the gist of it is if you don't agree with one thing that I say or you dislike one thing that I say, I will cancel everything that you've ever said or ever believed or ever accomplished. Now, that's not new. Like that's been around for a minute. We just have phrasing around that kind of for the first time. But you, you get this. It is everywhere. And if I were to be really, really honest for a second, which I probably will be a couple times today, um, I've, been, I've been on the side of cancel culture a, a good many times over even the last two years, um, whether it's through anonymous emails um, or DMs that find their way um, through my Facebook. Uh, there's about a half a million people that listen to Unfiltered Radio every month, broadcast of our messages. So you can only imagine how much um, fun mail and messages and email comes with that. But th the whole idea of someone will take something usually completely out of context, and I've had that happen multiple times, um, and then I'll politely ask if you listen to the other 35 minutes of the message. And, the, and then interesting enough, some of those people that I knew I would try to set up and, and talk to, very few would talk to me, but the few that would, we had conversations. What was always so interesting to me with the few people that I know, and I get a lot of stuff from people I don't know, but the few people that I knew were like great conversations on the front end. Hey, my marriage has been healed. Um, your te teaching, and this is their words, not mine, so I get it's all Jesus, but like has impacted my life, changed my life, all of these things. And then there's like this break in the conversation where there's this one word taken out of context. And now since I bowed to Caesar, and I want to explain, hey, bro, there, we don't have a Caesar, just like FYI. Uh, anyway, about the Caesar or more intent on being popular than calling people to repentance and taking a stand. They're like, I'm out. Like, I'm peacing out. I'm done. And it's so crazy. And it's everywhere, right? It's all over the place in every segment of culture. So everything's politicized, cancel culture. And then the third thing, this is where I really wanna land for a few minutes that I've been waiting to talk about for a while. Um, and it fit perfect with this series is this whole dynamic that has fueled so much confusion around the words of Jesus. And it's what I would refer to as culture war Christianity. 
Culture war Christianity. Here's basically what culture war Christianity is. Culture war Christianity, which many of you walked away from the church because of, even if you didn't know that was the wording for it, but you walked away for a decade or a decade and a half, or the view of Jesus that was handed to you was like, I don't want anything to do with that. But it's basically this idea or version of Christianity that is consumed with winning. And it constantly sees itself as under attack. It sees itself as under attack everywhere. And so it constantly feels the need and to have this posture of attacking back. And, and, at some, and I'll make fun of some stuff, but at some points it gets really, really silly. If you're old enough to remember back a few years ago, I mean, it comes down to Starbucks not serving the right cups at Christmas. I mean, it's just, it's off the rails in a million different directions. And then it goes off the rails in much more serious ways, but it's all about we're under attack, we have to attack back, and here's what you need to know about culture war Christianity. It always needs an enemy for sustainability. I mentioned this to you last week, but I was um, astonished by uh, an interview with uh, one of the guys that started what was called the Moral Majority Movement in the early 80s, which some of you will know about, and that's a whole nother series. But they asked them, like, how did, you, how did you do so much for this movement, and how did you raise so much money? And without blinking an eye, they looked back at the interviewer and said, you only need two things. You just need fear and ultimately um, control. And if you have those two things, you can raise a ton of money. And so culture war Christianity is obsessed with, we've got to win. It requires an enemy for sustainability. And part of the reason I know this is because I grew up with this, not because of my parents. My dad was an incredible pastor, but I grew up in a denomination and kind of a culture where this was the whole kind of essence of Christianity. We constantly thought we were under attack. We constantly thought we had to attack back, whether it was what people did around Christmas or who they were letting into Disney or whatever the, like, the latest thing was, we were constantly attacking back. And this defines itself as everybody is against us and we're against them. And it feels under attack by the government. It feels under attack by secularism. And here's the thing I put in my notes. It sets the church up to be a tool of politicians rather than the conscience of a community. Thanks to the seven people. <laughs> but it was encouraging because I wasn't sure if anybody was with me. So just to know there's a few, um, please golf clap me all the way out for the next 25 minutes, all right? Like, I don't know if you know this, I think you do. We've been called to be the conscience of a community. And really what it is, is that it's a hyper-fundamentalist view of Christianity that's really about winning more than it is loving. And it always, I'm just gonna go hard for a second, okay? It always fears losing something. And usually this type will, they love to hashtag things like faith over fear. And then the next sentence, they'll talk about the fact that you should be terrified because this is the end of the world. And probably any day now, like the tribulation's gonna start. Like it always fears, and I'm just telling you, a church in that position is always in a defensive posture. And I call it a version of Christianity because it in no way represents the version of Christianity of first century followers of the way. In fact, it is the opposite of what Jesus taught and modeled. Now here's the thing, you go far to the other side, you have problems too. Because what ends up happening is along the way, you will reimagine Jesus into the image of some activist agenda and you will lose the centrality of the gospel. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
where all of a sudden the, the things that I think are super important, whether you believe them or not, you don't have to believe them. I, I'm just telling you, this is what I think the scripture teaches. And then I believe Jesus died and rose again and go with the guy that came back from the dead. But the whole idea of there's a sin nature, like at some point along the way, all of us have stared up at the ceiling to go, I think there's something wrong with me. Like there's moments where we don't live up to our own, our own standards and the whole idea of the divinity of Christ, that he was perfect, lived a perfect life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, walked out of a grave alive. All of those are central tenets to following Jesus. And the moment you go too far to one side, it's hyper-fundamentalism. You go too far to the other side, you lose the centrality of the gospel. And by the way, you erode the foundation of dignity, fairness, and morality. And what you're left with, is anybody with me? What you're left with is what I would call majority morality. And that's where the culture ultimately determines what's right and what's fair. Now, just real quick, if you know history, you'll know this. And if you know how this works, even in other areas of the world right now, when you have a majority morality culture, women and children always suffer the most. Women and children always get the short end of that every single time. And it's why, and I said this last week, Jesus will never lead us toward the extremes. Because you can't solve problems there. You can't love people well there. And I think it's why you won't find Jesus there. Because it always requires an enemy it always leads to polarization. It's always about being on the defensive and attacking back. And it's why I have done my best that you wouldn't find our church there over the last several years. Now, if you're wondering, like, oh, where'd you get all that? Where's that? Where's that coming from? I'm so glad you asked. When Jesus showed up on planet earth, basically as he started his ministry, everybody was looking to Jesus to go, hey, when are you going to rise up and take our side? and take a stand against the other side. The entire time of Jesus' ministry, this is what they're waiting for. And the whole time, Jesus is like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not doing that. I'm not signing my name to that. Because Jesus understood the assumptions by both sides, and he refused to embrace them. And the assumption when Jesus showed up on planet Earth was this, that power and resources were to be leveraged primarily for the benefit of the powerful and resourced that power and resources were to be leveraged primarily for the benefit of the powerful and the resource. Everywhere in culture, this is how everybody viewed the world. This is how the gods, the pantheon of gods viewed the world. And Jesus shows up to go, I'm not playing that game of tug of war. I'm not taking your end of the rope because I have come, as hard as it is for you to wrap your mind around, I have come to set up an others first, upside down, subversive kingdom that is gonna be different than any other kingdom that you have ever seen on planet earth. And it's gonna deal in the mechanisms and the machinery of something that you've never even considered. In fact, Paul comes along and he says it best when he basically recounts how those who were closest to Jesus describe Jesus. And here's what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 6, who, being in the very nature God, pause. And real quick, when you, you talk about those two words, the nature of God, John talks about it in his account, where John says, listen, I'm telling you, when, when you are with Jesus, the essence of Jesus is love. If you look at Jesus, if you spent any time with Jesus, if you were around Jesus, you would know this. Jesus was the personification of love. And John would say, I'm not telling you that because of my experience. Dude ended up on an island dying for his faith. It never went well for him. He says, I'm telling you that because I spent three years with Jesus. And so if you wanna know how love acts, 
If you wanna know how love responds, if you wanna know what love sees, then you follow Jesus all throughout the gospel and you will get and understand the personification of love. It is the nature of who God is. And so back to Paul, Paul says, who being in the very nature of God, verse six, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, this was the differentiator for Jesus. This was what was different than any other movement. This is what was different than the pantheon of gods. This is what the Romans did not understand. This is what Jesus' disciples had a hard time understanding for three years, that Jesus showed up and Jesus did not play to win. Not in the way that first century or 21st century people define win. Jesus played to lose. Now, just real quick, does that sit well with anybody? I mean, in the room, thousands of people are watching and listening. Like, is anybody down with that? Especially in Western culture, American Christianity. Like, we are wired to win. I don't like to lose. I'm not a loser. I'm never gonna lose on purpose. I'm a savage with my kids. They will cry. They're five years old. You're not winning at anything. If you're gonna take me, you're gonna take me fair and square, right? Anybody? Like, we don't like to lose at anything. And in fact, as you study Jesus, though, Jesus wasn't opposed to winning. What you find as you follow Jesus all throughout the gospel is that Jesus was playing a completely different game with completely different rules with a completely different win. Because Jesus did not play to win, Jesus played to lose so that the other team could win. And you know who that is? You. You know who that is? Me with all my dysfunction, with all my stuff, with all the things in the rearview mirror of my life, me that knows me better than anybody knows me, you that understands where you came from, what happened a decade ago, the stuff that you've been through, the things that you've fought, God played to lose so that the other team could win and the win is you. The win is us, the win is the culture. It's why, as frustrating as Jesus was, and he was, by the way, he never took sides. Because Jesus understood that neither side was willing to lose for the sake of the other side. And he was out. In fact, Paul continues in Philippians 2, 7, he says this, rather, this is the, the contrast, he made himself, this is so uncomfortable, Somehow we've edited this out and we've created our own version that fits our own culture. This is so uncomfortable what Jesus is calling us into. Somebody should have given you a heads up. Rather, he made himself nothing. And in essence, what Paul is trying to bring to the surface is nobody's willing to do that because everybody wants to be somebody. Everybody wants to be someone. And here's Jesus who shows up into a culture that's hard for us to wrap our mind around how bad this was. And he refused to attach his name to the what's in it for me party or the what's in it for me group. Jesus refused to attach his name to the insists on winning, fears losing at all costs, clings to rather than gives up. And Jesus comes to model, to show, and to say, I made myself nothing. And then Paul continues, and he did it by taking the very nature of a, what, what's the name, what's the word? Online, what's the word? Serve, you, you can play too, you'll help them out. 
the very nature of a servant, basically gets up every day to go, how can I give up my life and my rights for the sake of you? How can I lay down what I deserve for the sake of you? How can I serve someone else and leverage what I have for their benefit rather than my benefit? And Paul is writing this to go, I'm just telling you, whether you like it or not, this is what described Jesus and church. You are the body of Christ, the body of Jesus, which means if you don't look like that and if you don't take that posture, you're not really following Jesus. This is why the church looks more like Christ when we are defending other people's rights than our own. This is why the church looks more like Christ when we are giving away rather than demanding our way. And none of us are comfortable with that. And I get it, I'm with you. But if that scares you, as a follower of Jesus, if you fear losing something and what's gonna happen and where it's gonna lead, then you understand how Jesus' first century disciples felt. Like this will clue you in and give you some context around the fact that they could be with Jesus for three years. I know you always read these verses and go, what morons? But this is why Jesus' disciples could be with Jesus for three years and Jesus would go, listen, ultimately I have to go and die. And they're like, no, no, Jesus, stop with the death talk, man. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You're the one that the law and prophets pointed to. Messiahs can't die. Sons of God can't give up their life. Jesus, just stop it. Because the disciples couldn't see any way that somebody in Jesus' position could ever lose. And in fact, during this whole time, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They had left Judea. And Jesus has got his guys with them. And you maybe know the famous story. If not, basically a couple of Jesus' followers are behind him and they're discussing when Jesus wins, who gets to be like, you know, top dogs in his cabinet, because they're ready for Jesus to overthrow Rome, to set up a political movement, to enforce his power and to leverage his might. And so they're all talking about this, like who can be second and who can be you know, third and who can sit at the big table. And they're discussing all of this after Jesus ultimately is gonna win. And Jesus, as they're moving toward um, Jerusalem, he decides to take a shortcut strategically through an area called Samaria. And Samaria obviously is where the majority of Samaritans lived and the racial tension between Jewish people and Samaritans was off the charts. And so the Jewish people, I mean, were hated by them. The Samaritans hated the Jewish people. So they take this shortcut and it's starting to get late and Jesus is like, hey, I want you guys to go ahead of me and try to get lodging so we can stay somewhere for the night. And so Jesus' disciples go try to get lodging and none of the Samaritan people in that village will let them in. No, nobody will give them a room because they hate Jewish people. And again, the disciples get it because they hate the Samaritans. And so they come back to Jesus, check this out. After being with Jesus for three years, like after eating lunch and dinner with Jesus, after having multiple conversations with Jesus, being as intimate with Jesus in a friendship as you could possibly be, after three years, here's what the disciples' response to not getting a room in Samaria. Luke records it in Luke 9, 54. They look at Jesus and go, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? (laughs) Basically a large portion of modern evangelicalism. Basically, hey, 
I don't think they know who we are. And I don't think they know who you are. And so I think you need to use your power to teach them a lesson. And if you know the story, Jesus looks at them and basically rebukes them the way he rebuked demons. Hey guys, look at me. Peter, eye to contact. Not in my movement. Not in my ecclesia. Not in my church. If you are not willing to lose, and if you are not willing to get to the end of the line, don't bother getting in my line. Don't pretend that you're a follower of Jesus because the moment you find yourself with leverage and power and influence, mark it down, that leverage, that power, and that influence is not for the sake of you. It's for the sake of other people around you. I am introducing a different kind of kingdom that is so unbelievably uncomfortable. They'll still be trying to catch up 2,000 years later. It is subversive. It is upside down. It is not of this world, and it requires you to give up everything for the sake of everyone else. And the disciples were thinking, Jesus, if you're gonna be arrested and killed, how are we gonna win? And Jesus' response was, that's how we're going to win. That's how it's gonna happen. In fact, what he was saying to his disciples, guys, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I know what's gonna happen. And I'm going to lose at their game in order to win at the game that I've been inviting you guys to play for three years. So let's go to Jerusalem so I can be arrested. And this always astonishes me because I don't know how I miss this. But then Jesus illustrates in the most profound way that the best possible person in all of humanity dies the worst death imaginable to illustrate that the best possible person in all of humanity did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the world. This is a new others first subversive upside down kingdom that the world has never seen. And Jesus would say, in my kingdom, there's no first or last. And you know maybe the story, then Jesus' disciples watched him the night before he was gonna be crucified and he was at a table with his guys and he takes off his robe, which is a sign of his rabbinical authority because he wanted to let them know visually, I'm laying aside what I deserve. And he gets on his knees and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples and he says to them when he's done, don't you ever forget this moment. And then he walks out of there And he's thrown through a a mock trial and ends up on a cross being victim to what the Romans had spent decades perfecting, Roman crucifixion. And on the cross, Jesus' disciples, (laughs) watch Jesus look into the face of his torturers and forgive them. And then they watch Jesus Turn to a guy who was rightfully being executed. Dude deserved it. And Jesus says to this guy, today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. And it took a minute, 
But once the resurrection hit and Jesus' disciples knew that he really was the son of God, he predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. It was that moment that they finally, after three years, understood what Jesus was trying to say, what Jesus was trying to do, what Jesus was trying to usher in, and that this really was a different kind of kingdom and they couldn't even wrap their minds around it. And from that moment forward, mark it down, you can study it in history, they gave up trying to win. Guys like Peter were crucified upside down. And this will be shocking to you and very uncomfortable. They gave up trying to change things. And they just did what Jesus said was the defining ethic and marching order for followers of Jesus in that upper room. I want you to go love other people the way that I have loved you. And as they began to do that, what Jesus predicted happened. The gates of hell and the gates of death and the power of Rome could not overcome his church. And 2,000 years later, here we are. And what's so fascinating to me is in their moment of surrender to go, we're not even trying to win or change anything any longer. They changed everything. And they were still asking the questions initially, okay, Jesus, how are you gonna build your church if you're crucified? And Jesus is going, guys, would you get with it? That's how I'm going to build my church. Nothing's gonna be able to stop it. And the only question for you is, are you willing to take up my invitation? Not, not to take up your rights, but to take up your cross And follow me. This is so important, and I'll be done. And then I'll duck out the back. I'll see you guys in three weeks. <laughs> Throughout history, when the church has opted for the tools and the machinery of the kingdoms of this world, we have always ended up looking just like the culture. And ultimately, we become a pawn. I'm telling you, Every time the church has leveraged the kingdoms of this world, the church looks weak, it looks desperate, it looks afraid. Every time the church gets super focused on here and now, forgetting the fact that we are aliens and strangers, to quote Paul, in a world that is not our own and one day we're going home. The moment we forget that, we get all about demanding our way and defending our rights. And I'm not talking about you as a citizen. That's a different application. But even then, it should look very, very differently. Because come on, if God didn't play the God card to his own benefit, neither should you. And the moment the church becomes all about demanding our way and defending our rights, we abandon the very thing that sets us apart that it is not about us. And that's shockingly countercultural. That's upside down. Like who in the world does that? Who thinks like that? And Jesus has been trying to say from the very beginning, my church does that. I don't, I don't know what your version is, but first century followers of Jesus, and thankfully most of us are not gonna get asked to do this. They were required to function in a culture with no standing, no influence, no money to where literally the threat of death was apparent every single day. And Jesus said to that church, that's what I've called you to do. When the church digs in its heels to win, 
whether that's exporting our morality and trying to moralize society, which we've never been called to do, whether it's to get our way, the moment we dig in our heels to win at anything, I'm just telling you, we have already lost. We have surrendered our voice. We have surrendered our influence. And I'm just gonna tell you, and I've said this throughout the series and I'm almost done, so let's, let's end this hard. So many of us, because of that, that culture war Christianity version, we have almost entirely viewed our faith through the lens of American domestic politics. And we'll attach our evangelical horse to anything that'll give us more power. And Jesus says, no, 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 I've been asking you to lay all of that down so that you don't become just another organization with a self-serving agenda. You have been called to lay down your life for the sake of the world. You are my body. You are the church. Over the last, after, over the last year especially, we've had to make several decisions, decisions as a church. We're going into it. I knew it was not the best decision for us as a church. And if there were selfish motives, we would have made a different decision. It was not best for us, but it was best for our community. It was best for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what we've been called to do. And during so much politicizing, Grace, I can hear your laugh on the third row. I've said a lot of words, okay? It's so politicized. I've got like so many messages, especially during where it was just at its height over this last year. I would get so many messages and nobody knew that this was a huge compliment to me, but they would send messages to go, I, would, you, would you just tell me where you stand already? Like I cannot figure it. One week I think you're on the left. One week I think you're on the right. You are so freaking confusing. Like I, and then they would send a list of questions. Hey, what do you think about? What do you think about? What do you think? And I literally several times, not trying to be smart, I just would email, thank you so much for those questions because I've been called to lead the church of Jesus Christ. We've never been called to the extremes. And I'm not talking about you as a citizen. I'm talking about the movement that is the church. We have been called to represent Jesus in our culture, our community, in our world. So if you wonder where we stand, that's where we stand. Paul said it best, so I end with him. Who being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He didn't defend his rights or demand his way. Check this out. But submitted it to evil men. Dang. And by becoming obedient to death, this is how far he went, even death on a cross. And the world has never been the same. Just a quick reminder, Republicans did not shape Western civilization. Democrats did not shape Western civilization. Jesus did that. And his message and his movement and his resurrection laid the foundations for justice and fairness and dignity 
for all people. And now he is inviting you and us into the uncomfortable invitation intention. I want you to follow me, which means less of you defending your rights and more of you laying down your life. So as we end, I just wanna end with this. I think here's one of the best things that you could do. For some of you, my hope throughout this series has been in some ways to help you begin to think differently wherever you are. And I think the best posture that you could take is to find a church where Jesus is central in that church, whether it's here, which I think it is, or somewhere else, if you're outside of our area, but find a church like that and engage, begin to serve somewhere. And by the way, service always requires sacrifice. Begin to give financially to a local movement that can make an impact in your community, like so many people did today. But get all in, stop playing a game. Stop sitting in a seat and treating the movement of the church like a hobby. There are much better hobbies. Go all in, give, serve, love, find a place, get into community with other brothers and sisters in Christ and then go find people who are nothing like you and invite them into your home as well. And I'm telling you, if the church would engage, center point, if we would engage like that, if that would be our primary focus, God's gonna change our community through us, our city. It's gonna reverberate through airways to places that we will never meet. God is going to do something significant through us, which is why I'm preaching this series. I don't wanna waste weeks or breath. I believe that God could do something significant through you to bring people home, to find life and freedom in Jesus through the church, to begin to change and turn around their perspective and maybe lead them to a place where their eternity is altered forever. So as we conclude, this is what we've said throughout this whole series, you can just keep moving along the rhythm of culture and culture always asks, what side am I on? How can we win? Jesus movement asks, who's in need? How can we help? Let's do that. you guys stand with me? I'm just going to pray for you real quick. Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done over these weeks. I pray for maybe those who are at this place where they've never crossed the line of faith to put their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would recognize that you came, lived a perfect life they couldn't live, died the death they should have died on the cross, and you walked out of a grave alive. And that simply by transferring their trust from trying to earn their way to God and instead trusting what you have done for them. And all they have to do is in their heart and mind to go, God, I trust you and I believe that. That's all it takes. That today would be that day and they would become sons and daughters of God. God, I pray that you would remind us that we are not just taking up space, that we have been placed here in this place, in this generation for a reason to make a significant impact and help us to stop settling for less. You are the only one who has the power to transform culture. And so I pray that we would take up your invitation as uncomfortable as it is, and you would do something significant through us. And we pray this in your incredible name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.